Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information about our church, visit therockonline.org. And now a message from The Rock of Gainesville. Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you. And thank you for all of those of you that are tuning in online. Welcome to The Rock of Gainesville. My name is Hector. I'm one of the pastors here. And we're going to continue in part two of a current sermon series that uh, Pastor Ron and I um, have undertaken. The title of this series is The Struggle and the Solution, A Survey of Sin and Savior. It sounds like a 60 Minutes episode to me, but I love the alliteration, so we're going to go with it. So PR kicked us off last weekend, and today I'm going to continue in this series by taking a closer look at the life of David as it's described in 2 Samuel. And today, we're going to take a sobering look at the reality of sin, a.k.a. the struggle, and then ultimately the solution that we have in Jesus Christ, who is perfect. So let me pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we position ourselves before you in this moment. We take every thought captive. We declare by faith that our hearts and our ears are open to receive what your Holy Spirit might speak to us today. I pray that you would speak and that you would be glorified in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. All right, so if you have your Bible with you, you can go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to get there in a little while. Um, but before we get there, we're going to go over and summarize a few things about David's life. David's life can be summarized into three parts. Number one, his trials. Number two, his triumphs. And number three, his troubles. In his trials, he was hunted and persecuted by Saul. During his triumphant years, the kingdom of Israel was established, and that was huge. And then the last chapter of his life was just riddled with troubles as a result of his own sinful choices. So today we're going to look at his triumphs and his troubles briefly in 2 Samuel. But before we go to an outline of his troubles, excuse me, of his triumphs, I want to uh, note some remarkable things that David did during those years. First, he brought the 12 tribes of Israel together in unity as one people under his rule. This was major, huge, because you have to keep in mind that at this point, All the tribes lived in different designated areas in the promised land. And this distance and their lack of commitment to God proved to be a great strain on the interpersonal relationships between the tribes. But David was given great wisdom, great courage, and skill to overcome old wounds and grievances that kept the tribes apart. Now, it took years, years, but by God's grace, David was successful to lead God's people into the best years they had ever known. Major achievement. Secondly, David cleared out the enemies from the promised land. If you remember, God gave clear instructions to the Israelites that as they entered in, they had to clear out the the, the enemies that occupied the land, lest they would go astray. They would intermarry with them, and ultimately they would serve their pagan gods. And at this point, this ongoing problem of clearing out the enemies that inhabited the promised land, it went back hundreds of years to the days of Joshua. But David, God was with him. And during his reign, the enemies were finally cleared out. And God's people were not only blessed with unity, but they were also blessed with security. 
And then another amazing and marvelous thing that David did during these triumphant years was that he demonstrated grace. He lamented and grieved over the loss of some of his enemies. This was highly unusual, yet incredibly compassionate. And it actually inspired those around him to love him all the more for it. David was a great king. So let's take a look at how some of these remarkable achievements came about. To start, in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 4, early on after Saul's death, the only tribe that would receive David as king was his own, the tribe of Judah. It says here in verse 4, Then the men of Judah came to David and anointed him king over the people of Judah. But then, by 2 Samuel chapter 5, just a few chapters later, in verse 1 through 3, we see David's favor amongst the other remaining 11 tribes increasing to this degree. Then all the tribes of Israel went to David at Hebron and told him, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, when Saul was our king, you were the only one who really led the forces of Israel. And the Lord told you, you will be the shepherd of my people Israel. You will be Israel's leader. So there at Hebron, King David made a covenant before the Lord with all the elders of Israel, and they anointed him king of Israel. There's the unity. Then in 2 Samuel chapter 6, David does something else that's remarkable. He brings the ark of God to Jerusalem. Think about that. This was basically a statement that David was placing the very presence of God at the center of national life. Powerful. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 7, which is one of my favorite chapters in this entire story, but specifically in verse 16, God gives David a great prophetic promise of future blessing. He says in verse 16, your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever. As I was meditating on that specific scripture, that was incredibly moving for me. See, because you have to know that God knew what was about to come in David's life. And yet still, he released this beautiful, prophetic promise into David's life. Then in 2 Samuel chapter 8 and 10, there's a bunch of military victories where David and uh, the armies of Israel were able to subdue more enemies who were oppressing God's people. It's, this is because God was with him, granting him victory. Literally, the Bible says, wherever he went, God granted him victory. That's right. And then, obviously, this made David more famous. And one more. In 2 Samuel chapter 9, we see a beautiful picture of David's kindness with Mephibosheth. Don't say that one too fast five times. <laughs> Mephibosheth. See, I almost got tangled up myself. Now, for those of you who don't know, Mephibosheth was the crippled grandson of David's enemy, King Saul. And David, what did he do? He invited him into his own house. He fed him from the king's table like one of the king's sons. This was incredibly gracious. Any other ruler would have wiped out the previous family in fear of a coup. Not David. Incredibly, incredibly gracious. So these chapters bring us to the high point in David's life, in David's reign. God's people were, let's count it off, united. Their enemies were subdued and security was established and a promise of great blessing was released, and grace prevailed. This is incredible for God's people. And yet we wonder, if only the story of David would have ended there. But 
There's a third chapter in David's life, his troubles. The struggle is about to rage, and it emerges right here in chapter 11, and it creates trouble for David for the remainder of his days. It begins with the story of David and Bathsheba. This is a really well-known story, so I'll describe it briefly and with care. (laughs) David committed adultery with a married woman named Bathsheba. She became pregnant, and when David learned about the pregnancy, he attempted to cover up the affair by calling for her husband Uriah, who was serving as a soldier in the king's army. When Uriah arrived, David sent him home plotting and believing that Uriah would take advantage of the opportunity and enjoy the comforts of home. So that later on, when the child was born, Uriah and everyone else would think that the child was his. But there was one problem. Uriah was an honorable man. You see, he refused to enjoy the comforts of his home while the men he served with were risking their lives out on the battlefield. So that first night, he slept outside the king's palace. Sort of surprised, yet committed, David tried again the following night by getting Uriah drunk, thinking surely now he's going to go home and enjoy his wife. But this principled and honorable man slept outside the palace a second time. So, seemingly without choices, the next day David did a heinous thing. He did a heinous thing in an attempt to conceal the matter. He sent Uriah back to the battlefield with a letter that he wrote to Joab, who was the commander of his army, telling him this in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 15. The letter instructed Joab, station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest. Then pull back so that he will be killed. Can you feel that? Can you feel that wickedness? You see, I think David wrote this letter and sealed it possibly right in front of Uriah because he had him deliver it. That's one of those moments where you're watching a TV show or a movie and you're curled up at the end of your couch with your blanket and you literally gasp at the betrayal. But this is better than Hollywood because this was real. This really happened. And Uriah, being a dutiful soldier, he returned to the battlefield and unknowingly passed on his own death warrant. So Joab carried out David's instructions in 2 Samuel Chapter 11, verse 16 and 17, it says, So Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. The sad news of her husband's death reached Bathsheba, and after an appropriate time of mourning, David sent for her, he married her, and in due time, the child was born. And the cover-up was complete. Except for this one important detail. On the bottom half of chapter, excuse me, of verse 27, 
it says, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. It's hard to imagine a story with as much relevance as this one for us today. Culture has this tendency, our culture, has this tendency. You know what? Commitment, actually. It has this commitment to cover up that which displeases God. They don't want to be honest. They don't want to be truthful. They don't want to use the word sin. It's like the word sin doesn't exist in their vocabulary. In our vocabulary, sometimes they want to soften the blow by calling it something else. For example, it's just not my personality. That's not my preference. Time out. When we're talking about the centrality and the supremacy of God's holy word, please remind me what your personality has to do with it. Nowhere near the sacredness of his word. Or how about, hey, it's all good. You do you, and I'll do me. It's not all good. And if we were really family, we wouldn't allow that dynamic to exist. Or how about, girl, spill that tea, I need a sip. Sounds a lot like gossip to me. Oh, hey, man, you got to play the field. Don't hate the player, hate the game. These are so many words to cover up the right one. Our world is afraid to say sin. Hear me, church. There are some churches that are afraid to say sin themselves. You see, we have to ask ourselves, is what we say about a thing of more importance, of more relevance, of more significance than what God has to say about a thing? Listen, the overarching theme, or one of them, I should say, of First and Second Samuel is that God opposes the proud and exalts the humble. So how foolishly arrogant of us to call something differently than what God calls it. You see, we have his holy word in our possession today to know that we cannot proudly defend, cover up, or excuse away that which displeases God. God loves us so much. He uses stories like David's to heighten our sense of horror towards sin. God's not going to allow the truth to be covered up. And so we're going to see that. I have three observations that I have prayed for us all to take away with us today. I pray these are helpful and encouraging and that they strengthen you to know the solution in the midst of your struggle. First up, the power of temptation. The power of temptation. Now, just for a moment, I want you to take into account in this story who committed these wicked sins. Yes, it was David. But don't miss this. this. This was striking to me. This is not 
young David. In fact, this is David in the final chapter of his life, not the first. Follow me here. David was in his mature years. In 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, it says that David was 30 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 40 years in all. He had reigned over Judah from Hebron for seven years and six months. And from Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah for 33 years. So he began at age 30, reigned for 40 years, which means he died at the age of 70. And now scholars are widely agreed that David would have been in his 50s during these events with Bathsheba and Uriah. So in other words, he was in the last 20 years of his life, not the first 20. Secondly, David was married. By this point, he was a father to adult children. You see, the Bible speaks a lot about youthful sins, but this story serves us as a warning of the special dangers that can come to us in our later years. Where we're maybe prone to be less on guard. Hear me, church. Don't think that because you are in the latter years of your life, that somehow you are beyond the power of temptation. Thirdly, David was a successful man. We talked about his great achievements earlier, right? So you know that prior to the events with Bathsheba and Uriah, he was sitting up in the palace resting and enjoying the successes that God had brought him up to that point. But hear me. Here's something that can be overlooked in that example and also serves us as an application point for us today. You see, when God gives you success, it's easy to think, it's easy to be tempted to think that you can do no wrong. It's easy. And lastly, David walked with God for many years. And this is supremely important. This was a man who truly loved God, walked intimately with him, so much so that the very Spirit of God inspired David and breathed out of him the very Word of God. You have to keep in mind that by this point in his life, he had written scores of God-glorifying psalms. Some that included prophetic promises of our Lord and Savior. What a privilege. He walked with God for many years. This is a seasoned believer. So, let me recap. David was a mature man. He was a family man. He was a successful man who walked intimately with the Lord. And yet, this is the man who committed these dark and wicked sins. It's sobering. It's sobering. Charles Spurgeon speaks of both ends of sin's spectrum in this way. He says, beware of self-righteousness. The black devil of licentiousness destroys his hundreds, but the white devil of self-righteousness destroys his thousands. <laughs> I love me some Charlie Spurgeon. I would have taken his master class any day. So well said. You see, fam, this is the truth, is that if the Spirit of God who gives grace and restrains sin, were taken away from any one of us. There's no telling where we might be or what we might be doing. There, the flesh is no different in an unbeliever than in a believer. There's no difference. 
Which is why we as believers are so grateful to God the Father for sending us God the Holy Spirit who enters us and helps us to wage war against the flesh. That's the language of the Bible, to wage war against the flesh. The Bible says that the flesh is hostile to God. The desires of the flesh are against the desires of the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the desires of the flesh. They're in constant opposition. So have no doubt, if you remove the power of the Holy Spirit, there is no telling how quickly your presumed strength will fail. No telling. You see, the story about David, it should shake us to the core. This is David. This is David. The man after God's own heart. Never imagine that you are beyond temptation. Sadly, we live in a world where many great Christian leaders have shocked the world with their moral failures. But there's also a backstory. You know, with stories like David's, there's always a backstory. Things like this just don't happen. For David, the backstory is clear in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 13. It says this After moving from Hebron to Jerusalem, David married more concubines and wives, and they had more sons and daughters. See, this is early in his reign long before this moment with Bathsheba. And you see, the, this was common. This is what kings of neighboring cultures commonly did. They would conquer a people, and then they would take for themselves wives and concubines. But hear me, this was a direct violation of the command from God to the people of Israel. I'll show you. In Deuteronomy in Deuteronomy 17, 17, the king must not take many wives for himself because they will turn his heart away from the Lord. Super clear. See, God's people were called to be separate. They were called to be a holy people. We're called to image the Genesis account of the institution of marriage where a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two become one flesh. So this couldn't have been clearer for David. Actually, if you go back and you read Deuteronomy chapter 17, it actually says that God gave Moses these instructions, that the king of Israel was supposed to make a copy of the statutes of what it's like to be a king, keep it with himself, and then read it every day. That was the instruction from God to Moses for the king. So what this means is that David had the scripture. But after being influenced by the patterns of the cultures around him, he carved out an area of compromise that was never submitted to the Lord? I mean, remember who we're talking about. This is a successful man, a blessed man, a leader among leaders whose carved out area of compromise becomes the root of his sin. He took up the pattern of the world instead of taking up the pattern of God's word. So this says to me clearly that David had a problem with lust. Now hear me, men. As a matter of fact, listen up, ladies. All of you, all of us. David had a problem with lust, and the more he gave into it, the more it controlled him. That's how it works. That's how it works. The temptation he accommodated into his life, grew until one day it simply overwhelmed him and led him down this compounding path of trouble. The the Bible makes it clear in James chapter 1, verse 15. 
These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So another takeaway for us today. The more room you give an evil desire, the more powerful that thing will become in your life. Sin is greedy. It lies to you. It whispers to you, go ahead. A little more won't hurt anybody. Take one more sip. Have another drink. Go ahead. Win yourself another dollar. One more touch. It's wicked. The power of temptation is wicked. I, for one, I'm grateful that God has preserved David's story in the Bible for us to serve us as a warning. See, we're learning that the root of every kind of sin lies in the flesh of even the most godly believers. So we have to ask ourselves, are we being realistic about what we're up against? Do we really think that we can live with integrity and not seek the help of God through his word and prayer? Do we really think that? Do we think that we're going to make it? Without him, without his word, without his presence, without a prayer life? Do we really think that we can walk with the Lord, serve the Lord, attend church, and pay our tithe, and at the same time keep a carved out area of compromise in our life that is covered up and unsubmitted to the Lord and not have that thing destroy us? Listen, David was a faithful, God-fearing man who, last time I checked, slayed lions, bears, and giants. And he couldn't do it. The power of temptation is very real, and we all need to hear it. Second point. The pain of sin. This third and final chapter in David's life illustrates this one important principle. The way of the sinner is hard. Point blank. The way of the sinner is hard. I'll give you an overview of the consequences of David's sin. In 2 Samuel 13... We have the horrifying story of the rape of David's daughter Tamar. As a result of the lust swirling around inside her own half-brother, Amnon, David's son. I can't imagine anything more painful to a father than seeing his own sins reproduced in his son. And for David, the devastating effects that it had on his own daughter. This is gutting. Later in that same chapter, we have the murder of Amnon at the hands of Tamar's full brother Absalom, who for two years after finding out What happened to her? He boiled with anger and revenge against Amnon. Two years plotting revenge and murder. Again, David's sin against Uriah being reproduced in his own family. And then in 2 Samuel 15... We have the story of Absalom's hatred toward his father, David, so much so that he plans to usurp the throne, usurp the throne by winning over the people. Ultimately, Absalom rebels 
against David by sending a secret message to the leaders of the other 11 tribes to stir up a rebellion against the king that caused David to get up from his post and flee from Jerusalem. Here we go again. Another secret message full of pride and desire to control. Reminiscent once again of David's folly. And then lastly, in 2 Samuel 18 and 19, after a bloody battle where thousands of Israelites died, David is restored to the throne, but his son Absalom, who he loved, is killed. David was inconsolable. His daughter was raped. He lost two sons. He lost the kingdom. And when he came back, he had to rebuild it all over again. That's exhausting. And that's absolutely terrible. Painful were the last days of David. The cost to his family, his career, God's people, and ultimately the cost to his own Savior, because as you know, one day Jesus would die for the sins that David committed. They were all great costs. And no fleeting pleasure is worth that kind of pain. So next time that you are tempted, count the cost to yourself, to your loved ones, as a believer, the, co- the cost to Christ and your relationship with him. First John chapter 3, verse 6 says it this way. Anyone who continues, listen, anyone who continues, there's a lot of implication there. Anyone who continues to live in him will not sin. But anyone who keeps on sinning does not know him or understand who he is. Anyone who keeps on sinning does not know him. Not knowing him is hell. Not knowing him is hell. That's where... Sin aims to take you. My prayer is that God would give us a heightened sense of horror towards sin. So sear this in your minds. Sin is painful, and nothing good ever comes from sin. Listen, if the only thing that we hear and believe about sin from the Bible is that God wonderfully forgives it in Jesus, which is beautifully and powerfully true. But if it's the only thing we ever hear, we'll have little defense against the schemes and strategies of the enemy and the temptation that he lays before us. Satan knows the word, and he'll distort it. He'll use it to thrive against your life. He'll whisper in your ear, go ahead and do it. You know Jesus will forgive you later anyways. That's scary. You see, we also need to hear this truth from the Bible. Sin destroys Sin destroys. Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Sin wrecks people's lives. David suffered for many years afterwards. So if you feel that, I believe that the Holy Spirit will grant you a greater sensitivity to the power of temptation and the pain of sin because he's good. He's for you. He loves you. He's called you to be holy. Which leads me to my third and final point, the perfection of Jesus Christ. David is a foreshadowing archetype of Jesus. During his triumphant years, David showed grace. He overcame his enemies 
He ushered in peace and security as a result of that. He brought all the 12 tribes together in unity. All of these things foreshadowed the coming of Jesus. But in this last chapter of David's life, we see him as not as someone who points to the Savior, but someone who is in need of the Savior. Israel's greatest king is in need of a greater king. And that, my friends, that's true for all of us. We all need the perfect gospel of Jesus Christ to free us from the powerful grip of sin. Rich Velotis, a pastor, speaker, and author out of New York City, says it this way. Sin is not something we do, but a power we are under. Education, good policies, and spiritual disciplines are critically important, but they cannot deliver us from sin's grip. Only the gospel can do that. So well said. So you have to know that although sin has power, Jesus is more powerful. Come on, church. Jesus is more powerful. You see, what we see in David's last days is not his likeness to Jesus. Instead, it's the incredible contrast to Jesus. It's actually kind of remarkable. Here are two quick little things. In David, we have a king who can't stand alone against temptation and falls into sin. In Jesus, we have a king who is more powerful than any temptation and lived perfectly without sin. In David, we have a king who sends Uriah and other loyal soldiers to die in the thick of battle. In other words, in David, we have a king who sacrifices the lives of other people to save himself. In Jesus, we have a king who sacrifices his life to save all of us. <laughs> There's no question. There's no question who the better king is. But here's my favorite part. As a sinner, knowing God's heart to pursue me as he has, knowing God's heart to pursue you as he has. I found this last thought incredibly wonderful. In the beginning of the New Testament, in the book of Matthew, there lies one sentence related to this story. Matthew begins his gospel account by recounting the descendants into which, Lord into which our Lord Jesus was born into. And in Matthew chapter 1, verse 6, we read this. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. How absolutely perfect. How absolutely perfect. That just makes me want to worship. It's just like our glorious and merciful king to do something like that. He's sovereign over sin. He's still executing his perfect will despite the wickedness and the evil in the world and in our own lives. It was through this family line, one that was marred by sin and full of incredible pain. It was through this family that Jesus chose to come into the world. Though David fled his mess, Jesus came into the mess. He came into this messed up world through a messed up family. 
He came into my messed up life. He came into your messed up life. And if you don't know Jesus today, he's ready to come into your messed up life too. This is what he does. He reveals his absolute, merciful, and glorious perfection. Jesus came into the world so that no matter how great the devastation was in David's life, sin would not have the last word. And similarly, Jesus came into the world so that sin would not have the last word in your life nor in my life. This is the God that we serve. Nothing good ever comes from sin, but great good comes from God's redeeming grace. He's the answer. He's the solution. He is merciful and kind and gracious. The struggle is real, but the solution is greater. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for your word. You use your word to speak to us, to transform our hearts and our minds in line with your will. God, thank you for what you have demonstrated to us today through the life of David. We receive the encouragement and the wisdom to be mindful of the power of temptation, the pain that sin can cause. God, we take those and we look to Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith. I pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit every day. Drive us to your word. Help our affection for your word and that quiet place that we enjoy with your presence. Help that affection grow in each and every one of us. God, help us to never forsake it. Help us to be absolutely convinced that there is no place like the place of your presence. This world has nothing to offer. Everything else pales miserably in comparison. We long for more of you, Jesus. And so we thank you for challenging us through your word today and reminding us that you are more powerful than temptation, that you are more powerful than sin, that you are still perfectly executing your perfect will in the earth and in our lives. We receive your goodness today to walk as your people, filled with your spirit, holy as you are holy. Help us, Lord. We need your help every day. And so we honor you, mighty God, and we bless you for this time together. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, bless you guys. One fast thing. If you don't know Jesus, if you're embattled with sin in your life, I want you to know that you can be free of it today. This is the God that we serve. He is mighty and powerful and able to save. Normally I ask everyone, or we ask for people to bow their heads, but raise your hand if Jesus has saved you and broken you free of sin. All of, these, all of, all of you who have your hands raised, let me hear with a clap how thankful you are that Jesus saved you from your sin. Yeah. So you see, if you're sitting in here, and you don't know Jesus, this is the family that God's calling you into, people who celebrate his victory in their lives. 
So if that's you, we want to celebrate with you too. If you're watching online, type it in the chat. If that's you, if you want to be done with sin in your life, if you want to be set free and chart a new course, just raise your hand at me. I want to pray for you. Just raise your hand at me and I want to pray for you. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So hear me, family. You see how good it was to be reminded of God's deliverance in your life? We hold the gospel in our hands. We hold the gospel in our hands. The good news has been revealed to us. And that's powerful. As a matter of fact, that's a privilege. There are others out in our community who need that good news. They are bound. They are spiraling out of control. They're in despair. And they need people who carry the truth and the light of Jesus' gospel to share it with them. So I want to encourage you, church. Be bold. Be bold. Take what's been freely given to you and give it freely to someone else. Invite somebody to church next weekend. Can you imagine if half of the people who stood up and gave Jesus that praise clap offering, if half of you got one person to come? Could you imagine that? The kingdom of God advances. Amen? And you've been called to play a part in that. Thank you so much. Bless you guys. I love you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information about our church, visit therockonline.org.